This podcast is brought to you by Watch City Research, your user research partner. Check out watchcityresearch.com for insightful blog posts and to learn more about our UX research services. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 97 UX Things podcast. Dan Berlin here, your host and book editor. As I mentioned in the first episode of the season, I'll be interviewing people from outside the book. This week, I'm joined by Jen Berselli, who will be talking about taking a systems thinking approach to UX. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining the podcast. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? You got it. So um, I am the uh, co-founder and principal uh, experience strategist is the title I'm using right now uh, at a, an experience strategy agency called Topology. And prior to that, I was most recently the chief design strategy officer at MadPow. And um, I'll pause there because I'm sure we'll get into my origin story shortly. But that's what I do today. Nice. Yeah, thanks for that. And yeah, exactly. What um, Tell us about your origin story and, and how you wound up where you are today, please. Yeah, so I think like a lot of folks in this world, I came via a winding path. Um, I almost said people of my generation, but <laughs> I'm not going to make it sound like it's such an ageist thing. Right. Though I do... I do know more and more, more and more folks, uh, you know, these days are aware of UX and related fields and, and move into that world um, straight out of school. So it's an interesting dynamic to think about how the domain will continue to change because of that. But I actually, um, I had no idea that UX was a thing. I had never heard of UX or information design or human factors or anything growing up. Um, I was, like many of us, really just a very curious kid. I loved learning, um, wanted to understand everything, how everything works, people um, objects, etc. And I ultimately decided to major in physics as an undergrad because physics represented to young Jen, the most fundamental study of everything. So I majored in physics as an undergrad, but during my years in school, um, quickly realized I did not want to go to grad school and fight for grant money to do graduate level physics research. I, I would have loved that, but it's nowhere near as romantic as I think like young people and most people outside of science think that it might be. So um, I also got involved in things like peer tutoring and really enjoyed the challenge of figuring out how to teach other people complex concepts like physics. So I thought, hey, that's teaching, isn't it? So I um, minored in education while I was doing that, which was a giant pain in the you know what, because it wasn't part of the program. But so then I moved into education and I actually taught high school physics for almost a decade. And I loved it at first. Um, those listeners who have friends or family who are teachers can probably relate that most teachers struggle their first few years and then fall into a rhythm. And it was the opposite for me. I really loved the first few years when I was really um, working hard to figure out how people's brains were wired and kids' mental models about physics and other um, science and math topics. So once I started to get sort of into a rhythm, I actually fell out of love with it. I sort of felt like I was being handed the same design brief every fall and being right. asked to solve the same design challenge again and again. I wouldn't have had that language for it at the time, but just serendipitously, I happened to um, come across a field of information design and had a friend who had shared like a blog with me or a magazine or something, slowly started reading more about it. And then um, eventually, and I'm very much uh, <laughs> shortening the story, but decided to leave teaching go back to grad school, um, studied uh, information and interaction design, service design, systems thinking. These were all kind of part of the program mm -hmm. um, where I where I went to school. And then out of grad school, you know, moved into a UX role, always enjoyed the more strategic fuzzy front end of the work. So over the years since grad school, I've 
basically been more and more involved in um, the sort of strategic service and systems level thinking for, um, you know, design and experience and, uh, and, and over time taking on more and more leadership as well. So ultimately, you know, helping lead uh, MadPow, small agency um, here in New England, and then um, striking out on my own to do it my own way. So nice. that's me. That's my story. Yep. Cool. Well, thanks for that story. And it's an interesting progression going from education to UX. And it, it, the way you described it, it makes perfect sense because the way it, it sounds like the challenge of conveying complex topics went away yeah. each year. And now you just get to do it on a regular basis. That's really almost kind of what I at the time, that's what I figured out for myself, even though I, you know, would not have again, really had that language, but I kind of said, you know, I really like designing learning mm -hmm. experiences, but I wanted to apply that same kind of thinking to other types of experiences. And right. that's exactly what I did. Um, and there are a lot of people who will look at that resume and, and maybe this is for like, especially younger folks that are listening or, or folks making career switches into UX, people will look at a resume like that. And some of them will go, well, that's a, crazy path. Wow. What, you know, but it's a really nice filter because the people that look at that trajectory and they say, wow, I get it. I can see that progression. It makes a lot of sense to me. It's, it makes total sense. Those are your people, you know, those right. are your employers that get it. They're going to see value. I, I want folks that I collaborate with to see my physics background and my teaching background as bonus because those yep. both inform my practice deeply. And sometimes people bring up the education piece and um, they ask if I miss teaching and I don't miss teaching because I actually still teach in a lot of ways, not just literally, because I do still teach. Now I teach design and leadership, you know, in post-secondary institutions, but even just, you know, from professional services angle, teaching clients, teaching collaborators, teaching peers, that's really critical to what we do as UX yep. professionals. So it's all there. And you bring up a great point about um, UX as that second career. It's often a second career for folks and yeah. people shouldn't get hung up. In, on the fact that, hey, my entire career wasn't in design. How can I get a job in design, really rely upon and learn from and bring forward the knowledge that you have from your previous career? Yeah, absolutely. And I, again, I, this, this dynamic is probably shifting as more and more people move into this world straight out of school. But I've always felt strongly that having exposure to and time spent in other fields is just 100% always a good thing. You know, it's yeah. actually probably my number one piece of advice. I guess we'll come back to the end of the end of the episode, but um, use it to your advantage and really be able to highlight what what your your career experience is, regardless of what the title or the field is is called, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, great. Thanks for all of that. Uh, let's turn to your topic at hand, uh, taking a systems thinking approach to UX. You know, tell us yeah. about that, please. So systems thinking is um, historically a field that is much more focused on frameworks and models and tools that are descriptive. They help us understand what is happening in a complex system and what may be occurring even in intangible and invisible ways between the components of a system. And I say components, I mean people or objects or data. Yeah. Um, but where I think design really uh, enriches and these things marry beautifully is that designers are the ones who are good about figuring what do we do? How do we intervene? What can we actually take from our knowledge and actually make a decision or design a thing, an intervention, a product, that can make a shift or change an outcome. So all of that is like fairly esoteric and abstract, but like what systems thinking really is, 
there isn't really one great definition. Um, you can, you know, do your Googling, but I like to think of it as it's, it's a way of making sense of the complexity of the world by looking at holes and relationships between things instead of breaking it into individual pieces and analyzing separate pieces. And I sometimes sense there's like this tension between folks who are really gung-ho about systems thinking and a systems view and folks who are more analytical and want to break things down into their components. I think they work together very nicely. They, this is not an either or, but so much of our world and so many of our practices, especially in business and innovation are driven by more of an engineering and optimization mindset that tends to break things into components and then want to analyze them as these like distinct separate bits, right. um, which can tell us a whole lot about them in isolation, but really re result in us missing the context of how they relate to each other. And the other part of it is that if you're only looking at the bits separately from each other, you're only looking at things that are actually, I say visible, but maybe not literally, but tangible that are, that are stuff. And what's usually gonna go missing from that analysis are the things that are invisible, like the flow of perceived value or the influence mm. of things on each other. But what I like to say to people who are like, why do I, why should I care about systems thinking? Um, there's this kind of common saying among different authors that write on this topic that the um, cause and effect that we, we see in the world are often not as close to each other in space and time as we think they are. And right. so taking a systems thinking view helps us understand that like, solutions we're designing today could become problems in the future that we're then trying to handle down the road. So if you can learn to adopt some of the perspectives of systems thinking, you can mitigate some of that and you can make better products and services and experience. Yep. I really like the point that you made about how we are we are in design and research. We often get caught up in the bits. We often get caught up in the smallest piece of data and how it affects other things. And you mentioned looking at the relationships between the whole, right? That was I mean, it was really interesting mm -hmm. what you said about looking at the whole. My question there is how do you know what the whole is? What what are the different <laughs> holes that we should be looking at? Is there a way to be looking at that? There, you know, there's like entire um, communities, academic and uh, non, that, that debate that exact topic. And I think the, the way that I like to think about it, and I think that is at least most effective for folks like us who are in experience design roles, is that any system is a system because somebody somewhere has defined it as a system and drawn a boundary around it. Mm. So to your point, what's the whole? There's no hard and fast rule. In fact, this is one of the things about systems thinking that makes it kind of hard sometimes for people to get their brain around because there are very few things that are black and white in systems thinking and systems science. And by the way, there's like a million sub categories of system science that I won't rattle off, but right. um, it's that lack of black and white thinking that can make it tough for some folks. But to your point, even the act of drawing a boundary around a system and saying, this is the whole that we're going to consider, that's an act, a choice, a conscious decision that you make as a designer. Maybe I should back up. Maybe it's not always conscious. And part of what I'm advocating for is that we take a more deliberate, conscious look at where are we drawing the boundaries of our system. And if we're going to say that we can consider, you know, I'm making like a hand motion here, this tiny little system, but we want to maybe expand out a little bit. We're not going to argue that we've somehow encompassed literally everything because you could expand right. that out to be the universe. But just knowing that if you are drawing the boundaries around something to analyze something, 
no matter what, you've drawn a boundary and therefore you've made it so something's being excluded from your analysis. So having the ability to kind of move those boundaries out to zoom in and out is the key. So there is no such thing as a hole. <laughs> it's yep. kind of just where you decide to mark it. And that's part of the problem that makes this tough. Yeah. And and how about us, you know, tacticians, you know, I'm, I'm a usability specialist. I'm a researcher who has his head in the, the weeds often enough. How do we how do we bring our heads up out of that and think about yeah. it that way? I, you know, I like to think about it as like altitudes. That's a it's a metaphor that works for me, um, you know, to, to say that there are different altitudes that you can be practicing at, you know, in the weeds, like we say it literally on the ground in the weeds, right, versus like getting a bird's eye view or a 10,000 foot view. Right. And so some of it really comes down to building up um, the ability and a comfort with working at different altitudes. So if you're a person that really likes to be in the weeds, it means sometimes you do just want to challenge yourself to zoom out a little bit. If you're planning a research study and you're going to focus on a particular user group or um, a segment of people, sure, of course, you're going to need to be focused on those details. But if you're not somebody that's already in a place to ask questions about who are we excluding, and what is the context of the use or the experience that you're studying? Yeah. You know, that's the place to start. And that's kind of like baby steps, like systems thinking 101, which I would probably think most people listening to this podcast may already be doing. Right. But then take that logic and extend it out a little further, you know, and ask yourself, what else am I excluding? What other context is out there? And then in, in addition to thinking about like, you know, widening the aperture, also start looking for the connections between things that isn't visible. And actually, this is where research is really helpful because research tells us what some of those things usually are when people start to reveal what the influences on their choices are. So if you think about, I like to use mapping as a good way to talk about this because people will ask, like, what, how does this, what does this look like? How does it manifest? Like, what, you know, what are the tools? You know, the, the maybe disappointing answer is, you're actually not really going to find a list of systems thinking artifacts. Like you do systems thinking, it looks like this. What right. it really is, is that you use your tools you already are using, but with a different mindset. So something like a map, a journey map, an ecosystem map, a blueprint, whatever you're mapping, you're going to still be creating a similar artifact, but it's more generative and you're using it in the process of understanding and making connections between things rather than just creating that map as an output to show this is how this works. And in doing so, you can identify, for example, these two things in an ecosystem, this human with this role and this tool that they use. Why, why, why does that person use that tool? Is it because the company established that was the workflow? Did that person make a choice to have that tool in hand? Those aren't visible things that you would see written out somewhere, but those are influences on that person's experience, the level of choice mm -hmm. and autonomy they had even using that tool. And you uncover that in research, but if you aren't already thinking about uncovering those intangibles and invisibles, you're not going to learn those things. And that's where that systems view becomes relevant because you wanna be asking yourself, not just what the, the bits or the nodes in this network are, what are the things that connect them to each other? Yep. I don't know if that, does that even make sense? No, it <laughs> does make me. sense. It does. Uh, and all too often, the the artifacts that we make jump too quickly to how are we solving this and what are the screens yeah. going to look like? But to your point, by having this visualization of the journey or the, the, the service, whatever it may be, it yeah. allows us to examine it and ask allow ourselves to ask why. And that seems to be a big part. Allow ourselves to ask why is it this way? Uh, so that we can remove friction yeah. or whatever the goal is.
You know, I also want to say, I've hinted at this, I don't think this is novel to most UX designers. What I think we're ready for as a profession is to kind of just take it up a level, really. Mm. I think a lot of people who, who already know what systems thinking is are like, yeah, I've been doing that for years. Right. Um, and there are people who maybe haven't heard the term, but when they hear it described, they say, well, I think that way, that's just what I would call being strategic. You know, and I, those are all valid points. I wouldn't yeah. argue with that. But I think really what I'm what I'm excited about and what I'm seeing happen and I'm seeing signals of this in our work is that there's more openness and appetite to, for this among business leaders, a, among the folks we work with, whether it's our clients, if we're in professional services or our leaders in our in-house teams and positions in addition to like, quote unquote, giving design at a seat at the table, what I'm hearing is an openness to the fact that these things are all interconnected. So instead of just giving design a seat at the table, but still saying you have to stay in your lane, there's more openness to the fact that transdisciplinary collaboration helps us also see things that are separate from each other and realize that they are influencing each other. So there's a moment happening right now that I think puts designers in a really important place to say, I can take a systems oriented view of experience that people have or product that people use. And in the past, a designer would have gotten told that stay in your lane, stay in your lane. Right. You're, you're here to figure out if that screen is intuitive. You're here to figure out if that IA works. And now it's okay. I can see how this is relevant. If you can make the case for why taking that view illuminates connections and illuminates influence and illuminates value flow and shows us where there are leverage points. It's one of those terms that bubbles out of conversations about systems thinking pretty frequently. It's if a system is, is kind of got something wrong with it, then fixing a product in one part of that system may not do anything to actually improve someone's experience because the bigger system in which it's taking place is actually the thing that's broken. And so yeah. looking for those leverage points in the system might mean that one leverage point could be fix that product, but another one could be completely different somewhere else further upstream in the experience or further you know, away in time or space that would be missed if you're not given the ability to look a little bit broader. So for all the designers out there who are like, yeah, Jen, okay, I've been doing this my whole career. What I'm seeing right now is a really big opportunity to do it even more at a higher level of strategy in business and innovation. And I think designers have the exact right skill set to take it from just making sense of things to making actual choices and decisions and, and action with it. I talk a lot yeah. about it's sense-making and then decision-making, like you make something with it. And that's where design yeah. is going to actually like supercharge systems thinking. So. That's my commercial for it anyway. It sounds like buy-in is going to be a huge part of this, you know, to yeah. go be, to get out of the lane as it were. Uh, yeah. Any tips on getting stakeholder buy-in and executive buy-in for more strategic thinking? <laughs> the age old question. I think yeah. it's not dissimilar to most other forms of our work, which is if you can't, if someone's not already on board, being able to make small wins or get a little bit of that work kind of done in a lightweight way that demonstrates its value and then like an avalanche, you know, it'll grow yeah. and roll into something bigger. Research is the obvious comparison, you know, an organization that's not research driven or doesn't want to invest in research. If you can demonstrate with some lightweight research how valuable it was to inform a decision usually you can earn the right to do more of it. And I find the same to be true with systems thinking. You don't have to come in and implement some like hugely disruptive way of working, but even just to say, hey, um, 
stakeholder or client, you know, you were very interested in us producing a journey map or um, a, a roadmap or a playbook or whatever your artifact outputs might be. Yeah. What if instead of making that the final output, we actually built that together in the middle of the project and we messed it up on purpose and we used it to generate, you know, places in the system where we think there needs to be a little bit more attention or so on. So sometimes it's just little lightweight shifts to show that that can be more valuable and then you earn the right to do more of it. Yeah. Designers already have those skills. Everyone's out there busy trying to do that. <laughs> right. So was there anything else you were hoping to convey here about systems thinking? I think that that's, that, that's the headline is that I think we already have these instincts and what's happening is people are building a language for this. And when people start to build a language for something, it means you've now got a tool you can use in your practice. Um, and so if you're not really familiar with systems thinking, I really encourage people to look into the actual field. For those who don't know much about it, it's a storied discipline with many sub-disciplines and I'm seeing more and more writing on it. So there are some great books. Um, if you've not read anything, I would start with Danella Meadows' book, Thinking in Systems. It's a really great primer. And I actually just saw that there's a newer book that just came out um, called Closing the Loop, Systems Thinking for Designers by Cheryl, I'm not sure how to say her last name because I don't know her, Kababa or Sababa. I have not read this yet. It just came out in February, um, Rosenfeld. But I imagine it's going to be a nice foundational piece for specifically for design practitioners as well. So yeah. there's a few others I would recommend, but really that's the headline is learn this language, guys, because it's going to be something that works in your favor. If you're already doing it, you're going to have more, I would say, credibility in your work. And if you're not already thinking about it this way, at least get familiar with this way of talking about the work you do, because there are two benefits. One from an ethical standpoint, understanding the downstream impacts of what you design is part of your imperative. As a practitioner, you have an ethical obligation to be thinking about what you're actually creating and putting into the world and how it's going to affect people far away in the future or far away physically. Right. And systems thinking is how you do that. And then put the ethics part aside. The other benefit is you're going to design better products and services because you're yeah. also thinking about those impacts and you're anticipating them. So there's no reason not to. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jen, that was really, really interesting. I really appreciate you bringing all this this uh, to the podcast. Um, first yeah. time we're talking about systems thinking on the podcast. Uh, in the final segment, we like getting a career tip. Is there a career tip about folks either breaking into UX or who are continuing their career in UX that you'd like to provide? Yeah, and I hinted at this earlier. Um, my favorite piece of advice to anybody is, well, Part one and part two. Part one, don't over-index on the advice you get from other practitioners. Nice. <laughs> and then the second is I really, really, really encourage folks to um, read and learn as much as they can about things that have nothing to do with your field. This is a little bit in danger of um, repeating. I think Adam Connor gave similar advice. He was saying, you know, to get yourself exposed to and immersed in other creative fields. You can learn so much from illustration or animation. Um, I, I take it even beyond like any field, literally anything. If you are kind of interested in um, rhetoric, if you're interested in biology, you know, fields that might feel like they're completely separate, nothing builds, I think, chops as a designer, especially if you want to be, um, and I researcher too, I use designer in the broadest sense. As a UX professional, right, if you want to have perspective that is going to make you really good at your job, 
being able to find connections between disparate things that seem like they're not connected at all is really key. And you do yep. that by following your curiosity across those disparate domains. So for every young UX professional out there who feels like they've got to read the like top 10 list about UX things, after you've read the 97 UX things book, put that down and go read 10 more books that have nothing to do with UX design. That's my advice. That's great advice. Jen, well, thank you so much for this. Uh, it's been a wonderful episode here with Systems Thinking and your career tips. So thank you so much for joining me here today. My pleasure. My guest today has been Jen Bricelli, who is talking about taking a systems thinking approach to UX. Thanks for listening, everyone. The 97 UX Things podcast is a companion to the book 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know, published by O'Reilly, and all book royalties go to UX nonprofits. The theme music is Iron Lung by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and I'm your host and book editor, Dan Berlin. Please remember to find the needs in your community and fill them with your best work. Thanks for listening.